You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff, and I interview former Blue Angel pilots and crew. And on this episode, I interview Steve Pettit, who's a former Fat Albert pilot who flew with the team from 1975 to 1977. Steve's got some incredible stories, including how the first Jado shot on Fat Albert came to be. He's also going to detail some of the early history on Fat Albert and how he ended up on Fat Albert for the very last Jado shot in 2009. All this and more, so if you're a fan of the Blue Angels and Blue Angels history, then stick around and please join me in welcoming Steve Pettit to the podcast. All right, Steve Pettit, welcome to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Before we kick off, I just want to wish all of our veterans out there a happy Veterans Day as we're about three days removed at the time of this recording, including my own father. Dad, I love you. But Steve, tell me about your background. You're a third generation Marine. Is that right? Uh, That's correct, uh, Ryan. Yeah, my... uh... My grandfather was a Marine Corps officer, and my father was a Marine Corps officer, and so I'm in third in line. So my background is that from the Marine Corps is that standpoint. Uh, is that I grew up here in uh, Coronado, where I live now, which is kind of a military town, Navy town. So you know, growing up as as a, as a child, you know, we saw a lot of the military and had a lot of influence, a lot of contact uh, with the military and Navy town. So it was always kind of in my blood, and like I, like I told you earlier, uh, so I had two. You know, third generation, and my mother was born on November 10th, which is the Marine Corps birthday. So it was pretty destined. I was going to go in the Marine Corps. <laughs> but first, you went to Santa Clara University, an area of the country I'm very familiar with. I actually lived across the street from the Santa Clara University baseball stadium for years. Beautiful part of the country. But how did you end up going to Santa Clara University and then transitioning to the Marines? Well, uh, here again, my dad had gone to Santa Clara. And so I had some interest in it from that standpoint. And I went up there and looked at it and just thought it looked like a great spot. And it was a little far. I didn't want to go real close here to San Diego, you know, so I wanted to get away from the, the lo- local environment. So I said, well, let's go up to Santa Clara. And uh, so I went up there and uh, really enjoyed it. Nice school, good people. And then from Santa Clara, I was I enrolled, enrolled in a, a program the Marine Corps has called Platoon Leaders Class, where you go during the summers uh, back to Quantico. And then when you get uh, your graduate, when you graduate, so I graduated in 1969. So when I walked up on the stage and got my college diploma, then I walked off and took off my robe and put on my, my dress white uniform for the Marine Corps and was commissioned the same day and on the same stage right there at Santa Clara. So at that point in your life, graduating college, did you know you had a passion for aviation? Is that something you had growing up or is that something that evolved over time? No, I, you know, I actually always did. Um, you know, here again, growing up here, you know, I always saw airplanes and, you know, in fact, one of my coaches from uh, baseball was, was a Navy, actually was a Marine Corps pilot. And uh, so I had some exposure to the pilots and, and aviation. And of course, I saw all the airplanes and I played with models and built models as a kid. So I always had kind of a fascination with, with airplanes and, and aviation. But here again, I, I don't know if I told you earlier, I just thought that was kind of a far reach for me. I just thought, man, be a pilot, that's that's like, you know, that's really out there. And uh, quite honestly, you know, I was an okay student, but I certainly was an ace of the base. I was a CB student in high school and not much better than that in college. So, but I I was always interested in it, and I, but I just wasn't sure that was in my, uh, you know, was I wasn't punching above my weight to be a pilot. But then I, when I uh, went to uh, the basic school in 1969, that's when I uh, really got serious about it. And so I took the tests and passed them and took the physical and passed. And that was the big thing. 
and uh, and got selected to be uh, into the aviation uh, when I was back at Quantico. So once you got into the aviation program, what does that syllabus look like to become a Marine Corps aviator? What's the training like? Well, um, normally the normal route is when you go back to Quantico, then when you finish Quantico, you go down to Pensacola and go through the Navy pilot pipeline. But during 1969, Marine Corps was looking for pilots a little a little quicker. And so they had a program in place, and it, may, it only ran for about two or three years, maybe two years, where, uh, and I did okay back at, at basic school, so I, I was high enough in my class that I got, so they came to me and they said, hey, we got a deal for you. We got this Air Force program where you can go down to the Air Force and, and get your wings, uh, Air Force wings, come back to the Marine Corps, and you'll be a, a fixed-wing pilot. And, and the nice thing about the Air Force program at that time, it was only one year. And so I said, well, that sounds like a deal. And you're guaranteed jets. So anyway, I, I opted out for the Air Force program. So um, after I finished basic school, I was sent down to Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock, Texas, of all places, as a Marine. And I went into the Air Force, into a class uh, of pilots. And uh, one year later, I, was, I came out as a designated Air Force pilot with Air Force wings as a Marine. Uh, so my, my path was a little bit different. And so once I came back uh, from the pilot pilot training in the Air Force, and I came back to the Marine Corps, went to uh, Cherry Point, and and from there I I, I got eventually got in the C one thirty program. Originally, I was I was tasked to be an A six pilot, and I was at Cherry Point, and I went over the A six. I went through this tra- transition squadron, and then um, I was talking to the A six people, and they said, you know, it's going to take about a year to get you through this program. And I said, holy moly, I don't want to sit around for a year. So literally, I went down to the C one thirty people and. Walked in their office one day and I said, hey, guys could use a pilot. And they said, yeah, probably. I said, well, how about you hire me? And they said, okay. And so I went over and started flight C-130s. Kind of a different tact a little bit than most people took. And how long did it take you to get through that C-130 program? Uh, get through the program? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, actually, here again, they were they were a fairly informal way they, they trained pilots. I, I was over there, went over there and... Uh, then they sent me out to the ground school, which is out here in, in California at El Toro. So I went through the ground school, learned about C-130s, and, um, and I had some little kind of a basic simulator program. But then I just went back to the squadron, and they just threw me in the airplane, and we went out and bounced and did approaches and flew around. And it, it probably didn't take but three or four months before the – in fact, I remember we were coming back from a training hop, and I looked at the guy, and he goes – so I said, well, how did they do? And he goes – you're fine. You're a co-pilot. <laughs> you know, so that was it. So I came in there and they gave me my Navy wings and designated me a C-130 pilot. And all of this is taking place around the time of the Vietnam War. So I can only assume that you were deployed in that direction. Yeah, right. So that was in 1971. And then so in, in the um, January 72 is when I got my, my first deployment over to Westpac. Uh, 72 was uh, still Vietnam era. The, the the ending year, the <laughs> call the the final stage is the the curtain call of the Vietnam War. Anyway, so I went to um, went to Okinawa. That was our home base. But then in uh, we also had a base. And when the war got hot again in March and April of seventy two, we had we opened up a base in uh, in the Philippines on Kibi Kibi Point. And then we also opened up a base in Thailand of all places uh, to support the Marines over there. And so I did a, a tour, one, 12 months uh, over there in 1972. So I spent a lot of time in, in uh, the Philippines, a lot of time in, in Thailand. And, you know, the other time was in, back in Okinawa. And what were the typical type of missions you would fly in Vietnam on the C-130? 
Yeah, the typical missions mostly were, were air refueling. So the uh, strike airplanes would go out for a mission. Of course, the F-4s and the other airplanes would burn up a lot of gas. So we'd have to go out there in orbit near they were going to go into, into their uh, attack mode. And so then when they come in or go out, they'd need to, to refuel. So we'd have two or four C-130s in a formation in orbit, uh, and they'd come in and tank off us and, and refuel. What was kind of funny about the Marines, we were kind of the poor men over there. So we'd be tanking at these guys at maybe 10,000 feet. We'd look above us and there'd be Air Force KC-135. So we couldn't see them anymore because they were refueling all the, all the Air Force guys. So we're down at the back, you know, getting our Marine buddies uh, refueled. And the Air Force guys are, had the airspace to the moon. We were down there in the weeds, so to speak. So, uh, but refueling missions was, was our, big, our big mission. We did a little bit of uh, moving people and equipment around in Vietnam, in and out of Vietnam. Uh, we landed some of these little dirt spots to you know, get people out and bring people in. So it was a pretty interesting mission. It really was. But here again, it was ma- mainly refueling and, and logistic support for the Marines. And so eventually, at some point, you did decide to apply for the Blue Angels. What drove that decision for you? Yeah, well, then I came back to, uh, to California, came to, uh, I got my dream job. I was coming back to El Toro, so back to California, and got back with the squadron. And then I just heard, you know, it's kind of like the grapevine, you, you know, it's community is fairly small. So I heard from some buddies that, that the job open, that was opening up in, uh, in uh, Pensacola for the Blues. And I knew one of the guys that was, well, I knew two of them, they were there, there at the time. So I called him and he said, yeah, come on in, and we're going to be at California for an air show. And come on out to the air show and, and we'll talk to you and, you know, get to meet the, the pilots and the boss and all that kind of stuff. So it was a little bit different. My selection, where they do it now, they do it much more formally now. I understand it. When I was uh, trying to meet the squadron and, and, and got selected, it was basically the C-130 guys kind of knew everybody. And, and so if you had some interest in it and, and everybody else kind of gave them, gave them a blessing, then they, they hired you. Uh, so there wasn't you know, it wasn't a big selection, you know, formal sit, sitting down or anything. It was just kind of informal. You you sit around to talk to the guys and then the C-130 guys would talk to you. And, you'd, you know, you had to be in the right time frame as far as uh, being able to have a, a, a two or three year tour down at, at Pensacola. So how did you learn you actually made the Blue Angels team? You know, the, the team obviously has a tradition of making a bit of a prank phone call to notify people they made the team, uh, usually misleading them to make them think that they aren't going to be selected before they tell them they are selected. Did you receive such a phone call? Uh, not really. No, they just kind of just called me up. and the, You know, they, they didn't do the dramatic thing where they, you know, they kind of chase you around. And, you know, they just said, no, come on, pack your bags, get get down here. Uh, actually, I didn't get down to Pensacola until um, so... I met them in November, and then for whatever reason, I didn't get down to, to Pensacola. I think it was until January. So they're already at winter training. So that I'd met met the guys that, that November, but then I didn't see them again until they were coming out of winter training uh, in, in El Centro. So I got down to Pensacola, and nobody was there just, just to see 130 guys and, and the squadrons at El, at, uh, El Centro. And I know you have some good stories about your time on the team with the Blue Angels, but before we do that, I wanted to get a quick history of Fat Albert, especially the early history. I definitely have some knowledge gaps there. I think you can fill them. Uh, so I know that Fat Albert first came to the team in 1970 in support of the F4 Phantoms. So why don't you tell us about the early history of Fat Albert? Yeah, that's right. 70, uh, 1970, the, the Marine Corps, which is kind of surprising because the Marine Corps is kind of you know, selfish about giving out their assets. But anyway, the Marine Corps said, yeah, we got a C-130 and we'll send it down to you and we'll give you a crew. So they did. The interesting kind of thing about that was in 1970, when that airplane was 
was sent down there and the crew, it was a detachment. It wasn't part of the, of the Blue Angels. The Blue Angels were a, a demonstration team, and they had a C-130 detachment. The C-130 drove them around and, and supported them. And it wasn't until 74 when, as you know, the, the squadron went through or the, the team went through some transition and they designated or they went from a demonstration team to a demonstration squadron. So in 1974, when they went to a squadron, then, then they incorporated the C-130s, C-130 into the squadron with their pilots and, and their crew people. But up to that point, it was it was a straight detachment. In fact, the, the first, if you look at some of the pictures, the first crew members, they didn't even wear, they just wore their khaki. They just wore khaki uniforms. They didn't wear flight suits. So they just were there as a strict you know, detachment. But then after 74, they, they were incorporated into the, uh, into the squadron. And so when Fat Albert came to the team in 1970, it didn't have that beautiful paint job we all know today. It was more of a black and white kind of stock marine aircraft. It wasn't until about 1974 it got that beautiful yellow, blue, and white paint job. We just don't know the origin of that. But you were telling me earlier how Fat Albert got his name. Why don't you share that story? Yeah. In fact, it it happened just before I got there. So it must have been in 74. It could have been in 73. But literally, uh, the guys were hanging. Because what had happened when when the... Fat Albert would be parked there at, during the air show. And they did just park there, and you know we talked to people, but there wasn't anything for us to do. Anyway, the guys were sitting around the, the airplane, and a little kid came up, was walking by the airplane, and he had his mom and dad with him. And a little kid stopped and he looked at the airplane, and says, "Dad, that looks look just like Fat Albert." <laughs> and so they heard it and they thought, "Oh, that's a great name." So the the name came from a from a spectator from the air show. But yeah, the the first C one thirty was just a stock C one thirty KC one thirty. From the from the fleet squadron. Now the one we got, uh, eight oh six, was not a uh, well, it was a Marine C one thirty or KC one thirty, but it was it was a special VIP airplane that they had in in one of the squadrons. So that's the airplane we flew and and that I flew eight oh eight oh six because it didn't have the refueling pods on it. If you notice that one, see the first one had refueling pods on it. Eight oh six did not because it was a VIP airplane. It would fly the the generals and stuff around during Vietnam. So at the time you joined the Blue Angels in 1975, to that point, I don't think Fat Albert was flying demos. I believe Fat Albert's sole mission at that point was to support the team's operations and operational missions. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Uh, they, that was their mission. You know, it basically still is the mission, but but the mission was strictly to support the team. They would they would leave on Thursday with all the equipment and the and the packup for the maintenance. They would land at the airfield. The guys would, most of they would just leave the package right there in, in the airplane, but they'd work with Albert as a, as a, you know, workplace, but Albert didn't do anything. He just sat there. And then, uh, and then Sunday when the air show was ended, they'd pack everything up and fly home. So, you know, Albert was, was strictly a logistical support airplane, uh, with no demonstrations at all. And, uh, you know, that's still basically the primary mission and they certainly need it. They couldn't do it without it. But there was no demonstrations uh, up until uh, 75 when, when I did the first JATO demonstration. And I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. But first, yeah. I, I want to hear about your first couple months on the Blue Angels. You'd mentioned you got to Pensacola and the team had already gone out to winter training. But what was the onboarding like for a Fat Albert pilot back in 1975? Was it a formal process? Well, here again, it wasn't, wasn't very uh, complex. They, I just came aboard and uh, Ron Fleming was the other pilot. Uh, here again, uh, uh, in 75, we just had two pilots. They used to have, they had three up until that point. But then when Ron was picking uh, for 75, 
And when I got chosen, he called me and said, you know, Steve, I think we're just going to go with two guys. How about just you and I will fly? And uh, how's that for you? And I said, that's fine by me. I, I really don't think we need three, but, you know, I can understand why you might have to have one, but no, I'm fine. So let's just go with two. So we did. So 75, uh, I showed up, Ron was there. We, you know, we checked out in the airplane, flew it around a little bit. It was basically a stock airplane. It wasn't a big deal for me. And then we completed getting the guys out of winter training. And then we went right onto the air show circuit. So there wasn't any, wasn't any special training at all that I had to go through. So let's talk about that first air show season you had in 1975. You know, a lot of the Fat Albert pilots I've spoken to or seen interviewed, they all have stories, stories of flying all-nighters to support the team's mission by picking up an engine apart or moving personnel, all to make sure that there's going to be six planes on the flight line come that air show weekend. Uh, I'm sure you've got some stories. Would love to hear one. Here again, and, and my hat's off was to the maintenance guys. These guys worked so hard. Uh, but sure enough, like anything else, something will break. And uh, one story that I, I really remembered was up in, um, we were in Moose Jaw, uh, Saskatchewan, Canada, up to be with the Snowbirds. And uh, it was probably 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night. And I'm just about to go out on Liberty. In fact, we had a, a commitment, you know, with, with the Snowbirds. And I'm just, I mean, my foot just went into the bar. I mean, I'm just stepped into the bar. Luckily, I didn't have anything else. And anyway, um, you know, over the PA said, you know, Captain Pettit, please come back. You know, we got a phone call for you. And I picked up and he said, hey, we just, we just puked an engine. Uh, and we need to get an engine back here, you know, quick, which entails, you know, two basically round trips. So sure enough, I called the crew and said, come on, we got to launch. We're going down to Pensacola. So we launched like at, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, flew all night down to Pensacola, got the engine, flew back to, back to Moose Jaw, and then had to fly the bad engine home. So we had to make two round trips. Uh, so, yeah, we, we had to do that a couple of times to get maybe a special part or something. But, you know, a lot of the parts came in in the, in the C-130, so it wasn't too often that we had to find something. An engine was one of them, or maybe something that was really, really critical that they didn't have. But, yeah, that was, that was our job. We had to go out and... and so that was it to support the, the squadron. So, uh, you know, you got called on, you got called on. I was part of the job. All right. So here's where the story gets fun, because as we mentioned up to this point, Fat Albert hadn't been flying demos, but that all changed when you and your co-pilot, you had an idea and you ran it by the boss. So <laughs> why don't you share that story with us? I don't think this one's widely known and it's yeah. a good one. Well, here again, it wasn't, it wasn't very formal. Um, Tony Last was our boss. Good guy. We really, really respect the guy. Uh, but, you know, and once in a while we'd get to fly a flat pass or we might go into the break and do something. But, you know, he wasn't going to let us go out and, and, you know, yank and bank the airplane around. Because basically if we broke it, then he's out of the air show business. So he kept a pretty tight leash on us. And I understand that. And that was okay. But here again, now comes the, the last show, the air show season. It's in Pensacola. It's where our home package is, where all our stuff is there. So Ron Fleming and I were in the, in the we had our little office there. We're knocking out ideas around. I said, you know, what can we do? This you know, it'd be nice to get in the air show, show the people, you know, what this airplane could do. And I look up at him and say, Ron, let's do a let's do a JATO demonstration. He goes, God, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So we get up and walk down to Tony's office, you know, down the passageway, and we knock on his door and come in his office. We said, uh, I said to him, I said, uh, boss, uh, I said, we'd like to be in the air show. I said, we can. We could really uh, show the people what this airplane could do. And he kind of looks at me, he's, he wore these little half glasses, and he, he, he looks up at me and he says, you know, what can you guys do? I said, do? I said, Christ, we can put Jato bottles on that thing, you know, light those things off, you know, like a Roman candle, and we could get that airplane to scream out like a, you know, a homesick angel. He looks up and he goes, 
capital idea, great idea. Okay, and he had the schedule right in front of him because there was our air show. So he writes in the in the he's got a margin there. So he looks at like one o'clock. One o'clock, okay. Jado demonstration, Fat Albert, you're in. You guys are good. So you know, we're we're really proud of ourselves. So we walk out of the office. We're walking down to our office. I look over at Ron and I go, "Okay, Ron, that's great." He says, "Yeah, that's really good, but I've never done these Jado shots. How do you do it?" I go, "Hell, I've never done one. Thought you'd done one." <laughs> So neither one of us, had, I think one of us had seen one, you know, so we'd never done one. So we went back to the office. I get out the Natops manual, you know, start flipping through it. I go, doesn't look that hard. <laughs> he goes, okay, but well, now we need Jato bottles. So this is like Wednesday. Now the air show is Saturday. So I start calling around to uh, the different bases to get some Jato bottles. And I call Cherry Point and I call, uh, there's an Air Force base there near I said, did you guys got any Jato bottles? And I couldn't find any. I couldn't find any. Finally, like Thursday afternoon, I'm still calling around. I get a guy up in Pax River. I call Pax River, Maryland. And uh, I get this little chief on the, on the phone. I said, hey, chief, you got any, any Jato bottles up there? He says, he says, hell, captain. I said, I got a whole warehouse full of them. He says, come up and get all you want. <laughs> so, so we did. We, we launched out that afternoon, went up to Pax River, you know, I didn't even sign for him. He just said he had a pallet of Jato bottles out on the line. We'd come in there, lower the ramp, put the Jato bottles on, and fly back to Pensacola. Now, this is Friday morning. So Friday morning, we get the crew guys out there, and we said, okay, guys, we got the Jato bottles. We're going to Jato demonstration. You guys figure out how to put them on because we know how to light them, but I don't know how to put them on. So so these guys here get the manuals out. They're looking it up. And uh, so off we go. And uh, so now that's – so now, now Saturday morning, we – we ratchet these bottles onto the airplane, get out there, and in the and I'm in the left seat, Ron's in the right seat, and um, get out there on the end of the runway, and and we said, okay, now we got a, we knew we had a 12 second burn. That was burn was determined on the temperature and some other things, but we had a little table we could look at, so we took all the gear off the airplane, make it real light, and it was a cold day because it's a really perfect day for a Jato demonstration. So we had myself, Ron, and, and an engineer, and then we took another guy, loadmaster, a guy named Dusty Rhodes, Sergeant Rhodes. And I said, okay, Sergeant Rhodes, all we want you to do is hack the watch and tell me when we get to 10 seconds, because at 12 seconds, the bottles are going to burn out, and I don't want to be you know, hanging on the props like this. So I need to get the nose over. So I need about a two-second push over. So he says, okay. So we rolled, you know, so I run the power up to full power, lock the brakes, I look at everybody, and the airplane just shaking like a goose, you know. So I release the brakes. There we go. We run down the runway. As soon as we rotate the nose, I tell I have the flight engineer, I said, fire. And he hits the button and shadow bottles go off. Well, it was like a kick in the pants. I mean, it's just like this. We're going way up in the air. I'm trying to pull the nose back, but you know, I'm a little slow on it. Anyway, about 10 seconds, I'm looking at the airspeed. I got Boku airspeed. I got plenty of airspeed. But Dusty Rhodes, the Sergeant Rhodes, he doesn't know this. So he goes, Mark, you know, like I'm supposed to get the nose over. Well, I didn't do it because I knew we had a lot of airspeed. So he goes, Mark, 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 Mark. <laughs> he kept saying, finally, okay, let's get it over. So I pushed it over. And that was it. So that was, you know, that was the demonstration. Then we came back. We didn't, it didn't do anything. Well, we did the, the Jato demonstration. Then we made a turn into the pattern. And then we did a, uh, you know, salt landing, which I've done. Those are, you know, those are pretty common. Which you come over the numbers, you bring it to idle, and then just put you know push the nose down, and and you know comes down like a, an elevator, uh, get to about forty or fifty feet, flare and stop. You bring it full reverse, and you stop it on about you know 
1,500, 2,000 feet. It's really cool. Um, and the people were, of course, you know, crowds went crazy. See the big airplane, you know, lift off and then come back and stop on a dime. They was, they was pretty impressed with it. But anyway, that's how it started. We, we, didn't, we didn't do any big briefings. We didn't do, you know, Ron and I talked about it. Uh, but, you know, we didn't do any training, obviously, because we'd never done one. Uh, but that was it. That was the first Jabra demonstration. It was a huge success. And, and uh, you know, that was kind of the birth of uh, the, the Fat Albert demonstration. So that's, that's how it started out. <laughs> okay. So it is pretty crazy to think that neither one of you had ever done a Jado takeoff before. Now you're doing one for the first time at a Blue Angels air show in front of an audience. So uh, you were, were you scared? I mean, neither one of you would know what it feels like. So how would you be able to tell something was going wrong? It's hard to believe you weren't a little nervous. Yeah. You know, we were probably just, you know, young and stupid and brave. You know, we didn't, you know, we thought we could do it. You know, the worst, we knew the worst that could happen is one of those Jato bottles, you know, depart the airplane. And one did actually, because we read about it, one happened down in the, uh, on the ice. Uh, the brackets had actually broken and, and the battle, you know, went ballistic, went through the wing. Um, but once they laid it off, we figured we're okay. So away we went. So given the demo was so well received in that last air show for 1975, did you guys build out a formal demo for Fat Albert for the 1976 season? No, we, we, we lost a couple of years out of it. In fact, it wasn't until uh, I left um, in 70, I think they started again in 70, let's see, 75, 6, and 7, 78, 79, I think they started again. We, um, we didn't do it the, la- the next two years. Uh, w- one of the reasons was, and, and it was the Navy got involved with the things, because when they found out that we had Jado bottles in the squadron, they went crazy. And they said, you can't store Jado bottles, and, you know, it's an explosive and all this other stuff. So they nixed our, uh, our Jado demonstration in 76 because they wouldn't let us keep the bottles there. Um, and then 77, I'm not sure what happened. I can't remember, but something happened that I don't know if the bottles weren't available or something, but, but anyway, they had a two year hiatus, uh, from the demonstration when the, when the guys came in and coming in a little bit later than me, then they got it regenerated. And I'm not sure how they, they did something to the Navy or placated them somehow. But uh, but after after seventy eight say then they, they that was part of the demonstration all the way through. So no Jado takeoffs for your last two years. But were you allowed to do any demonstrations like you see Fat Albert perform today without the Jado bottles? No, any demonstrations? No, no. Here again, we would here again we we sometimes we'd take the airplane into the break and, and do some flat passes and stuff. But we, you know we just didn't do any. Yeah. Is there a city or show site that sticks out in your memory during your tenure on the Blue Angels as a place that uh, left a significant impact on you or, or somewhere that you really looked forward to visiting during your time on the Blue Angels? Well, maybe not one. Um, I really, I mean, to your first part of the question, I really like interacting with people. And some of the smaller show sites were perfect for that. Like Mankato, Minnesota. I mean, you know, we go to Mankato. They'd never even seen a Navy guy or a Marine guy, you know. So they were really interested. Um, so it was really neat talking about the people up there. Some of the big cities like Chicago, um, you know, that was a, you know, that was a tremendous show with, a, you know, a million people out there, you know, um, so there were, those were impactful, but quite honestly, I really liked the, the smaller air sites, show sites, um, because here again, they, you know, I remember, I remember a guy in Mankato or, or Ontomo, Iowa, so Ontomo, Iowa, he came up to me and goes, I didn't know the Navy flew airplanes. You know, he had no idea. He says, and Marines, they fly airplanes too. I mean, it was funny, you know? So, so I enjoyed, you know, the, the smaller sites uh, traditionally more, more than the bigger, bigger places. And that's what's so great about air shows is having the performers being able to reach out and connect with the fans and really share the mission of the Navy and Marines. Uh, but 
that brings up a good point. You know, talk to me about some of the more impactful human relationships you created and who they were with during your time with the Blue Angels. Well, uh, I mean, all the guys that we served with, in fact, we had a really good uh, reunion in, for the 77 team uh, a couple of years ago in, in Annapolis. So we had a, a 77 team, 40 year reunion. Uh, and those are really good guys. All of them were good. I mean, every 75, 70, I wouldn't say one team is better than the other team. Uh, so, you know, th- those are people that I've kept in, you know, not all of them, but I've kept in contact with a few of them. Uh, the other 130 driver with me, Phil Brooks, who came on uh, in 76, uh, and I, we both got hired by American and flew with American together, and, and we keep in contact almost almost all the time. We're always emailing each other and things like that. So Phil and I are real good friends, uh, and a couple of other guys on the team, Vance Parker is a good friend of mine who we keep in contact with. And we, you know, when we see them at reunions, it's, you know, it's like, like time had, had not even passed. I mean, we see you guys like at the 40 reunion and we're still telling the same jabbing jokes and the, you know, the little things like that. So, uh, yeah, these are really impressive people. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a great crowd. It was a good people to work for. Really good. Now, I love this fact about you. You've obviously documented with us that you were at the controls for Fat Albert's first Jado takeoff all the way back in 1975, but you were also on board Fat Albert for the very last Jado takeoff in 2009. How did that happen? Yeah, that was good. That was really neat. Uh, Drew Hess, uh, who was flying the Albert that year, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, I mean, he found out that he was actually he was doing some research on, on, the, on the Jado demonstration. He called me one night and he said, uh, Captain Fat, and I said, yeah, he says, uh, I'm trying to do some research and find out about the, the first Jado. I said, well, you're talking right, man, because I was the one that did it. <laughs> so he goes, well, great. So we chatted and talked and gave him the whole story that I just regaled to you. So then um, as the season progressed, he says, you know, this is going to be our last our last demonstration. We're out of Jado bottles. They're, they're expensive. And um, whatever reason, we just, you know, Jado bottle is not going to be part of the demonstration anymore. So he said, would you like to come on down and, and ride the last one? I said, you bet. <laughs> so uh, it was the homecoming show in, in um, 09. So I flew down and, uh, you know, spent the weekend there and uh, and got to ride in the jump seat. So when uh, Drew uh, flew the last one on Sunday, I was I was in the jump seat with him. We also had our uh, one of our uh, flight engineers was with us, too. So we had two of the crew members that flew on the first Jado shot, on the last Jado shot. That was kind of neat. So be clear, you've flown two Jado shots in your career, uh, both in Fat Albert with the Blue Angels, but no other no other Jado shots? Not in my military career, no. I was it. I was it. So that's awesome. <laughs> your two Jado shots were, were the first Jado shot with Fat Albert yeah. and the last Jado shot with Fat Albert. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so as we wrap up here, we've obviously documented your incredible military career as an aviator, but you've also had a, a pretty long and distinguished career as an, as a commercial airline pilot as well. So what advice do you have for young people that are actually considering a career in aviation now? One thing I like to express to kids and, and anybody, young people, is that, you know, I, I wasn't sure I was had the stuff to be a pilot. I mean, here again, I thought, you know, pilots are like, you know, God, you know, I was just a, you know, I could barely get through algebra two in high school. So... Um, but I, you know, I did it and I, I got through it. it. It wasn't easy. It was probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life, getting through pilot training. Um, but I did it. And I think everybody, you know, with enough determination and, and, you know, just stick with it, uh, can do it too. So it doesn't, you don't have to be the ace of the base. You don't have to be the smartest kid in the block to be a pilot. Pilots are anybody else. I mean, they'll, they learn a skill and, uh, you know, it's a diminishing skill as we find out. 
But, uh, you know, it's a skill and you can learn it. And But uh, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room to do it. All right. Thanks to Steve Pettit for joining us here on the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Love hearing those stories and always love learning something new about the Blue Angels history. So if you like stories like these, make sure you're subscribed to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast and the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel. Plenty of content just like this on the channel now and more to come. So until next time, thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you real soon.